Speaking of family and how proud parents are, I, I, I also have a family announcement that, that many of you don't know. It's not about that grandbaby coming in Zimbabwe. I think many of you do know that one. But our youngest, our littlest one, is engaged. Daniel is getting married. Yeah. Last one, finally. He got a job and it was like, yes. Don't have to feed him anymore. And now he's getting married. Yes. Somebody else has to look after him now. Right? This is great. So there'll be, a, there'll, there'll be a wedding this summer. I think August 11th is the, is, is the date. Don't know exactly where yet. Maybe here, maybe somewhere else. We don't know yet. That'll all get worked out. And I'm told that the groom's family has very little to do with that. So we'll just find out what happens. But um, maybe we'll find out on Facebook. I don't know. Maybe you saw the uh, news on Facebook. You saw a picture of a ring and that kind of stuff. That's how we, that's how we connect. That's how we find out things these days, right? I've never really fully understood Facebook. I didn't get it, especially realized that when we had teens, okay? They were on Facebook, and so, well, we were on Facebook, and we had friends on Facebook, but, but our kids were on Facebook, and we wanted to see the things that our kids were doing. Well, I did. I, I shouldn't talk for Julie, but I wanted to see what they were doing, what they were she posting and sharing and stuff, and I was told, ew, dad, that's creepy. That's stalking. Okay, so... When you post pictures of you and your friends having a great time out there at the beach, and it's a great picture, and so they share it, who knows where to who knows who, so that even bearded Brutus, who never leaves the basement, looks at that picture. That's cool. That's going viral. But if your loving parents follow your stuff on Facebook, that's creepy. That's stalking. I don't get Facebook. Okay? But what if, what if it, it wasn't uh, somebody out there who the thing gets shared to, the bearded Brutus who never leaves the basement, that parents might be concerned about? What if that's not the real danger? What if Facebook itself was the bearded Brutus who never leaves the basement. What if Facebook was the stalker? Now, we'd like to believe that Facebook and Google, that they're, they have such good altruistic motives that they want to give us uh, free email and web searching and maps and location tracking and cloud storage. Please upload all of your pictures and a social media platform that we can share what we're really thinking that we wouldn't actually say to somebody face-to-face. -face. They want to provide all of that for us because... Oh, they're just nice, and they want us to have a, a, a open, relationally connected society. Right. Or maybe they're in it for the money. Well, come on, it's only fair that Facebook ought to be able to, you know, they, they, they have a few ads, and they put those in our news feed too, and we just scroll right past them. We don't pay. They've got to earn a little money, and people pay ads to put them on Facebook or, or in your Google searches. We'll, we'll go with that, Okay. Never mind the fact that Google is reading all of my emails and monitoring my web searches so they can figure out what they could advertise to me. But what if it's even bigger than that? 
You know, a good rule of thumb to think about in the digital age, if you aren't paying for the service, you are the product. Think about that for a minute. If you are not paying for the service, you are the product. What if somebody was gathering your post, pictures, your likes. Oh, and they send you an app on Facebook. And it's, wouldn't you like to know what kind of animal you would be if you were an animal? I don't know why you would care, but you do. So you say, yes, I want to know what kind of animal I am or which movie star I am or something. And then you go answering a list of questions, right? Well, they are psychologically profiling questions. Well, how else would we know what kind of animal we were? So you answer the psychological profiling questions, and that tells somebody else some interesting things about you, but it's even better than that. When you click, okay, tell me, please, what kind of animal I am, you give them access to your entire Facebook profile and history and all the things that you posted and all the things that you liked or didn't like and everything else that's up there that you've forgotten all about. And all of that can be analyzed together, not so they can tell you, what kind of animal you are, but so that they can gather a, a profile, not only of you, but you also gave them your access to all of your friends' profiles. Thank you for that. I've unfriended you. Uh, what if they did that? They gathered all the stuff that's, uh, that, that you've done online, where you've been, what you posted, all of these things. What if they put that together, your emails, your likes, your travels, your purchases, to build an analytical database filled with information that is then sold to others and used to use and manipulate you? What if that actually happened? I'm not dreaming this up in my conspiracy-filled head. This is actually the news of the week. This is what has been going on, and now it's the big thing about the last election, but <laughs> that's old news. It was happening in 2012. We don't know how long and how far it's been happening. Probably as long as Facebook's been big, certainly. It's creepy to think about how much big digital. Nobody talks about big pharmacy, big oil. Nobody talks about big digital. But it's creepy to think about how much Big Digital knows about you and I. And what do they do with it? Does that make you feel safe? Does that make you feel a little exposed, a little want to hide? You know, Psalm 139 speaks to us about how God knows us. In fact, nobody knows you like God knows you. God knows you better than Google does. Nobody knows you like God knows you. God knows you better than Google. And yet, nobody loves you like God loves you. Knowing what he knows and yet not to use you, not to manipulate you, not to steer you this way or that way to serve his ends, but for your good. Nobody knows you, Psalm 139 tells us, than like God does. I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 139. If you're using a church Bible, I'd like you to follow along the verses or phrases we'll look at as we go. We'll go kind of section by section. If you grab the Pew Bible in front of you, um, 
will be on page 521. If you're, if you're using um, a device in your hand, just be aware. Google knows you're reading Psalm 139 this morning. <laughs> first of all, hey, the, this passage kind of breaks up into four nice sections, six verses each. So we'll go six at a time. The first six verses, God knows you better than a Google psychologist. The psychologists are fun, right? Talk about a, talk about a, a, a mood killer, right? You're, you're standing around talking to a group of people. Oh, what do you do? I'm a psychologist. Okay. Withdraw. You know, or, or a psychiatrist or anything like that. This person can read my mind. You know, what makes us, what makes us do that? Back away slowly. Don't say anything. They, can, they know what you're thinking because they're a psychologist. Well, no, no, they can't really. But um, God knows what we're thinking. What do we do with that? God knows you better than a Google psychologist. Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar, whether I post them or not. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Somebody told me that if you were to put together, analyze, develop a profile out of all the digital data that is out there on you, everything from your Safeway card to the online stuff, they would know you far better than you, than you know yourself. Such knowledge is too much for me. I couldn't attain it. Verse 2, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. I thought of Nathaniel in the Gospel of John. You remember the story of Nathaniel. Philip has just met Jesus. And, and, and Philip now, he runs to tell Nathaniel, we found the Christ, we found the Messiah. Come and see. It's this guy Jesus from Nazareth. You know, we know him, Joseph, his father. And Nathaniel's like, oh, I don't know. He's laying, he's sitting there under a fig tree thinking about something. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Really? The Messiah from Nazareth of all places? That grubby little village? No, 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 come on, come and see. So, so he does, but not with that out there in the open. His thoughts, you know, he's going to meet the Messiah. Well, let's, let's, let's see what he has to say. He comes to Jesus, and as he's coming, Jesus says, Oh, look, here's a true Israelite in whom there is no guile, no deceit, no deception, no two-facedness, no sin. A real Israelite, an innocent one, a worthy one. As if Jesus is maybe tongue-in-cheek saying, Can anything good come out of Israel? Uh, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit when uh, he actually knows that what Nathaniel had just said about him because Nathaniel asked the question, well, Lord, Lord, how do you know me? And maybe Nathaniel thinks Jesus is giving him a good reference. And the Lord replies, before, while you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. I knew you before you even knew of me. John 6, John 6, Jesus' disciples are grumbling. 
They're grumbling about the hard things that he has said and how could this be and what do we do with this and people aren't going to like the sound of that and he's, he's grumbling about it and, or, or rather the disciples are grumbling about it and Jesus knows that they're grumbling. Do you ever have that happen? Here you are grumbling. Why does the Bible say that? Why does the Lord say that? And he confronts you with it. Let's talk about that. In uh, verse 4, it says, even before a word is on my tongue, you know it. I think of the story in Matthew 9, Luke chapter 5. There's these, there's these friends that they have, a, a, they, they have one of their own friends who's paralyzed. And they think, if we can get him to Jesus, Jesus would heal him. But there's this crowd around the house. And in Luke 5, it tells how they have to go in through the roof and drop him down in order to get him before Jesus. And yet their faith, their confidence in what Jesus will do is that strong that they do this. And when they do that, they put him before, before Jesus. Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. He remarks on his faith and he says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees start to grumbling. Inside, among themselves, they say, who does this guy think he is that he can forgive sin? Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus calls them out on it. Jesus says to them, why do you question in your hearts who is this man to forgive sin? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? You can't really tell if that happens or not. Or rise up and walk. Well, everybody can see if that happens. And so he says to the man, rise up and walk. Get up, take your pallet, and go. And he gets up, he takes his bed with him, and he goes. What we can see happening out of what Jesus says tells us that also what Jesus says, his sins are forgiven, that we can't see, and yet we can be confident that that happens as well. And yet it starts with Jesus knowing what's inside their head before they say it. Remember the woman in Samaria at the well. Jesus meets her. He has to go that way because he's got an appointment at noontime with a woman at a well. When women aren't supposed to be at the well, but this woman is there because she doesn't go at the other times of the day when other ladies are there. And she's there. Jesus is waiting for her. He says, finally, would you give me a drink? And he, be, he engages her in conversation. He draws her in. Why would he talk to her? And he, he does it in such a way that he finally, when she says, says I, I, I don't have a husband, he says that you've answered correctly. In fact, you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not you. How did he know that? He has drawn her into the conversation, then kind of come around from behind. And now she's trapped to confront who is this Jesus. She goes back to the village. She said, come and see a man who has told me everything I ever did. And she didn't even have Facebook yet. Come and see a man who's told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Yes. Yes, it is. Have you ever experienced that from God? Have you ever experienced God telling you, God, like the prophet Nathan does to King David, puts his finger on your chest, maybe something out of the word, maybe it was something here in this room, maybe it was at, 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 on your own by yourself as you read as you read God's word, maybe it was in a small group where God puts his finger and said, this is for you. And God shows you something about you from his word. Have you had that happen? Because that's what God does in prayer, in his word. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says this. Hebrews 4, 
Verse 12, the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature, that's you and I, is hidden from God's sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's word is living, it is piercing. God knows us and he uses his word like a searchlight. It reveals things about us. You see, God knows you better than a Google psychologist who had access to all of your profile information, analyzed all that stuff about everywhere you've ever been, everywhere you've ever done, all the online places you went and the things that you've posted. God knows you better than that because God knows you. Now, initially reactive, thinking about a Google psychologist, that makes us want to hide. Quick, cover up the laptop's camera. Pull the network cable, turn off the Wi-Fi, go in there and tighten down those privacy settings, wherever they hide them. That might work with Facebook or Google, at least until the next update when they default back to open again. But it doesn't work with God. We can't hide from God. There's no way, there's nowhere to hide from him. That's what the next six verses tell us. God knows us better than anyone, and there's nowhere to hide from him, even though we try. Look at verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Where can I flee from your presence? Even in heaven itself I couldn't hide from you. Close as we come to that is Adam and Eve tried to hide from God in God's own garden. It didn't work. Think of the story this way. God does not search them out to condemn them. As John described last week, God searches them out that he might expose the serpent as the one who has deceived them. And that he might provide for them a covering for their guilt, a covering for their shame. God provides for them at the expense of another who dies in their place in order to provide for them a covering. That's what's going on in Genesis chapter 3. God searches you out, not to shame you, not to humiliate you. He knows your best efforts to cover and to hide are not enough. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell on the furthest reaches of the sea, there's Jonah. The Lord came to Jonah, said, arise, go to Nineveh, proclaim to that great city. And Jonah went down the opposite direction to Joppa. And there he got on board a ship, a ship. They hoisted the sail, and they were carried along by the wind to the farthest reaches of the sea, all the way to Tarshish, as far away from Nineveh as he could get. And he couldn't hide from God there. He says, well then, never mind, turn the ship back. No, throw me overboard. I'm not going to Nineveh even if it kills me. 
And they toss him overboard. And Jonah expects to drown. And yet, even there, God's right hand upholds him. And God sends a fish. And the fish gets Noah. And he, 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 Noah's in the fish. And then he spits him up on dry land. And Noah, Jonah, I'm talking Noah, right? Jonah, you're with me. Okay. Jonah. He spits him up on dry land. And Jonah stinks. Man, he is in no shape to be a prophet now. I mean, he was all dressed up before, but now he's, he's a wreck. He's a mess. And the Lord appeared to him, came to him again and said, Arise, go to Nineveh. Sent right back on that short-term ministry to Nineveh that God had sent him to. You know, there's a lot of Jonah in us, isn't there? There's a little Jonah in all of us, hiding from what God calls us to. It might be a short-term mission, maybe to Jamaica, maybe to Europe this summer, Josiah Venture. Maybe it's a short-term mission trip to the nursery or pre-K. Equally intimidating, I'm sure. But we fear that God is, if we, if we open ourselves up, we fear that God is going to use us for his stuff. And we're afraid of what it's going to cost us. Right? That's not like God. That's like Google. With God, he doesn't use us. He lifts us. He lets us join him in what he is doing. You know, at the, at the, um, at the work day yesterday, there were some, some younger kids there. They were helping. One of them had this cute little plastic rake. I still wanted to rake with that rake, but they gave me a big one that I could do real work with. Uh, they, uh, one time, this little boy, six years old or so, he's... he's He's helping with the pressure washing, right? He's helping with the pressure washing. If they don't hold on to him, this pressure washer is going to carry him all over the place. Somebody's going to get it right in the face, right? I'm watching this. This is not going to be good. But it was so good. It was so sweet. And the way that they let him, his uncles in the church, let him help with the pressure washing, that's how God lets us help with his stuff. And, he, and we are so thrilled and God is so delighted that we want to be with him in his stuff. God doesn't want to use you. He lifts us. He lets us join him in what he's doing. Anything we think is a cost, we are going to count as all joy. We're going to be so glad that God pried our fingers off of that thing that we were clinging to instead so that we could hold his hand. And don't worry, God is, not, God is not relying on what you bring to the table. God is not going to put on you more than you could bear by his grace because God knows what you're made of. God knows what I'm made of. God knows that I don't have much to offer, really, because God knows me better than I know me. God knows what I'm made of because God made me. Look at the next section of six verses from verse 13. You formed me in my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. We know. My frame is not hidden from you. When I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. 
How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they were more than the sand. I, I awake, and I'm still with you. God knows what you're made of. Verse 14 says that God made you, and God does good work. We think that because of sin, we can't do this or that, that we've been corrupted, we've been ruined to the point that we've got nothing left to offer. I could never do that. But when we think that way, what I could never do, brothers and sisters, don't underestimate the redemptive power of God's grace. Don't underestimate where God is able to do in us and through us in his redemption. That's what Paul tells us to pray, or Paul demonstrates for us how to pray for the church, how to pray for one another, when he says, I don't quit praying for you these three things. I pray for you that you would know the hope of his calling, that you would know what God has before you, what God has done for you, how God has lifted you up, who you now are in Christ, all of eternity stretching before you. I pray that you would know You'd get a clear glimpse of the hope of his calling, that you would know more fully and deeply the riches of his inheritance and the saints, how much God himself treasures you. His future is all about you. He delights in you. And what is, third prayer request, that you would know what is the greatness of his power toward us who believe. What kind of power is that? It's the same power, Easter's coming, it's the same power that rose Christ Jesus from the dead. That's the kind of power that God has toward you and I who believe. It's not about us, it's not what we bring to the table. God knows we don't have much to offer. God doesn't need to do a DNA test to know that our genetics are all messed up. Folks, your genetics are all messed up. They are. We are all terminal. And yet God can do something about that. He already has. You know, speaking of DNA tests, let's have a little fun. DNA tests seem like fun, right? There's, there's 23 and me and others out there now. You can find out who you are and where you came from. My mother-in-law's standard answer to that, she has a Bostonian accent, and so people would talk with her, and they say, where are you from? It's so cute. And she said, I'm from my mother. What else do you need to know? But you can take a DNA test now and you can find out where you're from, what's your ancestry. And you can find out, well, I'm this much this or that or that or that. And maybe there's even some, maybe there's even some Native American in me. Who knows? <coughs> and, and yet, let's have a little fun with that. Maybe your health care provider could do a DNA test for you. Maybe they would do a DNA test for you. They would help you to know, you know, if you had any higher risks of this condition or that. And they, of course, would have the results of this DNA test that they'd done for you. And, of course, they probably wouldn't do this. But what if your healthcare provider would take that genetic information of a propensity you have towards some scary illness or another... And they might use that to maybe slow walk, slow down, or deny a particular course of treatment or option because what they know that you might not know is, according to their DNA analysis, the, the odds aren't really that good for you. So, you know, there's no sense us spending all this money on you. You know, dude, you're not going to make it anyway. Not for long anyway. So why bother? Would they do that? Would your health care provider actually do that? Now, 
Or is this just Bob? Is, guys, Bob has gone off the edge here. Bob has just, his, his conspiracy theoried head has just carried him away here. But I do know this. I do know this. God knows us deeper than DNA. God formed us from when we were unformed. You know what that means? I've seen, I've seen people when they're yet unformed. Christmas time, our daughter in Zimbabwe sent us a picture. We opened it up on Christmas and it has this frame that says headline news. Some wonderfully great people are going to become grandparents. And it's us. And she has in that picture frame this picture. And it's one of those CAT scan pictures, right? One of those, I think it's CAT scan. Is that the right kind of scan? Ultrasound. See, all the moms know that. I know nothing. All right. Told you, I brought nothing to the table. You start with expectations small, and it only goes up from there. The, the, the ultrasound, it's got this picture of the ultrasound. And in this ultrasound, there's, you know, it's like this shaped, and there's a baby in there. And I'm looking. There's a baby in there? Where's the baby in there? There's supposed to be a baby in there. That's the unformed. That's what Psalm 39 is talking about. And later on, as the, as the baby gets bigger, you can see there's a baby in there somewhere. But it was still unformed, I'm quite sure, when that picture was produced. God knows us in our unformed form. God knows us deeper than DNA, and yet he does not ever use that to withhold help, because, dude, you're not going to make it anyway. No, God, God uses that knowledge to come and be our help. He steps into this broken world. He takes on humanity that he might bear all of humanity's stuff upon himself in Jesus. He dies in our place that he might give us instead his life. Instead of holding back because we're not so promising, God gives it all, his promise, to us. You see, God knows our weakness. Psalm 103 puts it this way. The Lord shows compassion on us because he knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. But what did God do with dust? The capstone of his creation. He made man in his own image. What can he do in redemption through his own son? concludes in verse 17 and 18. This is overwhelming. It's incomprehensible. The way that God considers or thinks about even dwells upon us. It's more than I can imagine. He says, when I awake, I am still with you. You know, when you're asleep, you're defenseless. If anybody wants to get you, if anybody wants to do away with you, they could do it when you're asleep. You can't protect yourself. Husbands, love your wives. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I joke. <laughs> but when I'm asleep, I'm defenseless and I cannot keep myself, right? And I wake up again and I'm still with God. God still has me. That's the thing. Think about it this way. You're on one of those. When we were, when we were younger, uh, not as wise, we used to do these drive straight through trips. We would go all the way to San Diego where Julie's folks were and we would drive straight through 20 hours. Right? All through the day, all through the night. I remember one trip we made from, from the coast of Mississippi. We drove all the way past Baltimore. That was crazy. What were we thinking? That is a long way to go. And I remember one time, I don't even remember which highway it was. I was half asleep. 
Well, I was asleep. We're, we're, we're driving along, and it's, those, it's that death hour. It's like 2 or 3 a.m. You know, there's no morning light yet to tell your brain, hey, wake back up again. It's the worst time of the night when deadly accidents happen. And let's say you're driving along at that time, and all of a sudden you're startled awake by the bump, bump, bump because you're taking out those turtles in the middle of the road as your car drifts across the center line, Right? And you're like, oh my goodness. And you, you quickly, now you're wide awake and you, you pull over and you're like, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. God, I'm going to start going to church again. Oh, thank you, God. And how long was I asleep for? I don't know. But I wake and I'm still with you. And I am at my most defenseless. God has me. That's what's going on in Psalm 139. Man, God has me. Nobody knows you like God knows you and nobody keeps you like God keeps you. Nobody loves you like God loves you. Because God faithfully knows us and loves us, we expect then that God is going to keep us. We, we turn that outward toward things that we think threaten us. And that's what the psalmist does. Yeah, he turns it out to, to other threats that are outside. Well, God, then you know. You know what's going on. You know who's against me. You'll protect me, right? You can almost see the bargaining going on. Look at verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Don't I hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Huh. We too easily focus on God's salvation as our deliverance from whoever's against us. Verse 21, 22 suggests that the psalmist is weary of the ungodliness around him. He wants God to judge it. Have you ever thought, why doesn't God judge that? A light example. Years ago, before June and I were married, I'd drive back and forth along Highway 90. Every other weekend, I'd drive from Spokane to the western side of the state, Everett Marysville, where Julie lived. And I'd spend the weekend at home, and then I'd drive back. Every other week, I did that. And, and one of the signs, you know, you're driving along Interstate 90 where you can look farther and see less than anywhere else out there around Moses Lake. It's, it's just wide open, nothing there. Driving along, and all of a sudden, there's this little sports car. Comes up, roaring up behind me, zips around me, takes off, and I'm thinking, man. Look at that guy driving. Where's a state patrol when you need one? Well, it's not long. In fact, it's right about I'm thinking that. And I look in the rearview mirror, and there's a state patrol behind me. And he pulls around, and he's got his lights on, and he takes off. And I said, yeah, that guy's going to get what's coming to him. That's right. That's, what's, that's what ought to happen. And sure enough, mile up the road, he's got that little sports car pulled over. And, he, and, 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 the, and, the, and the state patrolman is standing out there. And as I come up, he waves me on over too. He didn't want my witness as to how the guy was driving. Apparently, he was pacing me before he pulled around me. They'll go track the other guy down. I'd seen now and again state patrol with two cars pulled over at once, and I was like, how do they do that? Now I know how they do that. He waved me on over. I pulls over. He tells the guy that he's already caught, you know, pull on up behind him, and off we go, and there's the three of us now, now sitting there together. We want God's judgment on others. What we want is mercy for ourselves. And yet, I knew what the other guy was doing. The state patrolman also knew how fast I was doing. I wasn't even aware of that. I wasn't aware that I was speeding too. Oh, thank you, Mr. Officer, for pointing that out. I, I, I didn't realize. 
God knows us. God knows us, and yet, we sometimes are, are rightly grieved and angered by the rampant destruction and sin, the dysfunctional damage that it brings around us. We see that, and we see the hurt of it, and we, we recoil against it. It should ache our hearts, but it shouldn't let us lose compassion for people around us. It shouldn't cause us to lose sight of how desperately others and we also desperately need God's mercy, God's restoration. As the psalmist sees the sins of others, it seems to remind him in the last two verses of his own need for God's searching. Verse 23 and 24, perhaps the best known words of this psalm, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way, any wicked way in me, any way in me that grieves your heart and lead me in your everlasting way. This is the goal of God knowing me better than Google. God knows me not to ruin me, but to restore me. God knows me not to profit from me, but to protect me, to preserve me. I want an all-knowing God to save me from other threats, but I need an all-knowing God to save me from me. There's a caution in this righteous declaration, verses 19 to 22. How we might see the, the sin, the unrighteousness around us, there's a caution for us there. The absolute hatred of God's enemies that is expressed may go farther than God's own heart. Now, we ought to never consider ourselves more righteous than God is. And yet, God's, God, God's hatred of sin is always beyond ours, and yet, God does not hate us as sinners. He grieved over us. He came after us. He sought us and bought us. He made us his own children. He covered our sin and shame. John 3.16 does not say, for God so loathed the rebellious world. It doesn't say that. John 3.16 does not say, for God so hated, with complete hatred, the wicked world. See, God knows us better than Google. All of it. Everything. And yet, God loves us better than anyone. He knows your heart, and he also knows its hardness. He, we don't need to hide from God. We can give ourselves into his hand. We can trust ourselves to him because while nobody knows us like God does, nobody loves us like he does. Nobody is safer to trust ourselves to, to trust him for our best, to trust him with our worst. So the psalmist concludes, instead of judgment on others, he concludes, he invites God's examining of him. Search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Now, it's probably helpful to ask, well, then how does God do that? How does God search me and know me? How does God reveal what's in me? Well, it's right here before us in this psalm. The two ways that God does that, or two of the ways God does that, are right here before us in this psalm. This psalm is a prayer. The prayer focuses on who God is. It considers sin and unrighteousness, the need for God to do something, and then the, in the prayer, the psalmist is led to conclude in yielding up his own heart. You see what God has done? God has moved him from looking at others to inviting God to look at him. He can trust himself in God's gaze. It happened in prayer. 
And not only that, but what is this psalm? This psalm is God's word. This, the, that lead me in your everlasting ways. We think about everlasting ways and ways that will last forever, ways that go on into eternity. That, that's, that's in the word, but the emphasis of the word is ancient, from the earliest of times. Lead me in your unchanging ways, in your ways which always were, your ways which for the psalmist were established through the books of Moses. God's word hasn't changed. The psalmist has changed, and he needs to return. I'm reminded of that song. How will we, how will we be led in God's ancient, unchanging, everlasting ways? By ancient words, ever true, changing me, changing you. Lord, we come with open hearts. Let your ancient word impart that God will change us. We give ourselves prayerfully to God's word. He will search our hearts, show us what's there, strengthen us, lead us in his way. I hope, I hope this week you have a chance to talk to somebody about face work about Facebook. Maybe you can warn them. You know, hey, you need to check those application settings. You know, there's some creepy stuff going on out there. It's, a, it's, it's scary what Facebook or Google really know about us. But do you ever think about what God knows about us? We were talking about that in church this Sunday. God knows more than Google does. I don't know how that conversation can segue, but surely include in there that God knows you better than Google. But God will not use you. God will preserve you. God will lift you. God will restore you. Nobody knows you like God knows you, and nobody loves you like God loves you. Let's pray. Father, we, we do pray that you would give us entrance this week. Lord, uh, friends around us, Lord, to use the, the events that are going on, things happening, that we could use those to connect to who you are and what you have done. Father, maybe it's Google, maybe it's Facebook, but maybe it's Easter. Lord, that uh, you would use us to invite others also to know your enduring truth, ancient words that tell us the same story of Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, would you use even this offering now? Lord, would you use this to advance your word? here among us in our community and Father from here around the world. We pray this in Jesus' name.